That's our Why don't we uh, get started just with discussion on last week, and then we can jump in when we're done. How uh, how's everybody's last week been? Gray. Good. It was just how it, yeah, that's good. I'm glad you did that. Too good. should just go behind the shed. I'm going to leave that one there. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. I get that. Somebody rustling around. Yeah. This week, I mean, I've just seen, I've got entered a lot of really short term and kind of medial prayers. But it's just, like, even just seeing those is, it's nice. Yeah. It's great. Very good. Love that. Yeah. Um, I kind of was feeling like, like you said, the moment you, uh, where is it? The moment you accept Christ as your Savior, your life is over. <laughs> Did I say that? Okay. That sounds like something I would say. It's more like I don't remember saying that. That's. Yeah. And so what it, you know, like your life isn't yours anymore. It's not yours anymore. And yeah. so that kind of, like, so I, I get that it's, that's a good thing, mm -hmm. except that it kind of left me wondering, like, okay, so what am I doing with this? Mm -hmm. What am I doing? What should I be doing? I think we kind of talked about that. Yeah. So it's just like, am I doing what I should be doing? Sure. Am I doing what he wants me to do? So. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, Sarah just read this book. Um, I'm not gonna remember what it's called, but it's about, uh, he's, I, I believe he was a brain surgeon, a, a man from India and had, uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so it's a memoir essentially that he wrote while he was dying and his wife helped write with him and then he died before he could finish it. 
And so she finished it and then published it. And Sarah, Sarah just read that. She said, one of the things that was so fascinating about it is that she could see like one, you just, you actually have, you're challenged with things in death, like in the moment where you're confronted with death that you've never been challenged with before and everything actually changes. And you could hear that in what he was saying, what he was talking about. And one of the things he talked about was that um, like he's, yeah, cause he was, he talked about how the fact like he works on brains. And so and when he's going to go work on a brain, they have to discuss with people. Like if I slip, if I move too far this way or too far that way, if something happens that is just slightly off, you might not have the ability to form language anymore. Are you sure you want me to do this? And he said, what, what always came back to him and it made sense to him at the time was that those every person responded with as long as it will buy me more time as long as it'll buy me more time and he said that he 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 came to realize that him and his wife had to sit down and talk about what they wanted life to be like because there was a lot of treatment he could have that probably wouldn't have been good life and so they came down and just like planned out and said we won't do anything that will take away these things so if I can live longer, taking all of the treatment that I can that won't wreck these parts of me, then that's great. But if, if I end up dying quicker because I won't take treatment that will wreck those things, then I, then I end up dying quicker. And part of it was just this idea of his whole life then had to be reimagined. And what are they going to spend their time on? What's their legacy that they're living? So they had, so again, brain surgeon, I think she was maybe in medicine as well. They're really, really well-known elite level people. And it was, wasn't until he was diagnosed terminally that he went, oh my goodness, we have to have a family. And so they had a kid and she went, okay, I don't want you to do this. Like just, just for me. And he went, no, we like, I feel like this is how have we missed this all along? Yeah. You know, well, needs a login. Uh, what's that? It's in his other dress. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> Just digging me all over. <laughs> She's not ours. <laughs> I have my own. I wouldn't do that. So. so then we should probably reimagine our life now while we're not dying. Well, yeah, yeah and I think Sarah. that that's that's actually the whole. <laughs> yeah, so I think that one of the things we have to understand is that so there's there's this there's a um there's this contradictory message and not contradictory it's um juxtaposition that we that we hold is that we when we choose Christ we take up our cross. It is it is the choice unto death, a life unto death. At the same time, it is the only life that produces life. 
And so that's that's why Jesus' words are so important when he says, like, those that those that will lose their lives will gain it. But those, but those that fight to keep their life will lose it. And so the it's not just once we're saved, but it's it's actually in the whole process of salvation that we have to reimagine life and say, what is this actually about? What's the purpose of this? What sort of eternal uh, benefit does this hold? Yeah. And so Sarah and I have been talking lots about this, and it's it's come up a lot, especially with our kids being at home. Um, more often is that we just we consistently are going, wow, why have we wasted so much time? What What's the benefit of this for uh, eternity, for myself or my kids, if I'm going to make their schooling or whatever else more important? And I, I get really extreme about it. So I'm not always the best person to talk to. <laughs> I feel like that makes me go, oh, I never want to spend money on clothes again. I never want to spend money on, and I get like super extreme about it. And I mean, for me, that's like a difference of like the $30 every three years I spend current, like I don't already. So it's not like a big, that's not a big ask. <laughs> I don't, I don't bananas. really spend money. Sorry. Do you buy green bananas? No, I don't buy bananas. I think they're disgusting. So. <laughs> um, but I, I, I have this, I have this tendency in me that is really, honestly, my family's been really good for me because I have this tendency of just going, this isn't healthy uh, in, in the sense of like, I've watched people use it for the sake of idolatry and all those things. So I'm going to cut it out of my life completely. I have this like ascetic side, this monk style side to me where I was like, I can just go without all of that. That doesn't make a difference to me. Um, fasting was easy and, and consumerism was revolting and that stuff's easy for me. Um, what's harder though, is to live in community and hold that. It's been really hard for me to, to live within a, to live in a family that doesn't all, they, most of them don't agree with me on those things. Actually, none of them do. And, and yet what's, um, it makes me ask better questions. So it makes me want to teach them, but it also makes me ask better questions because it's not just uh, the night and day of, well, let's cut it all out or, or it's all, cause it's all evil or, well, let's allow it all. Cause it's all good. Where's the balance? Yeah. So your question is what is the eternal benefit in how we're living? Yeah. That's a question you can ask. About yeah. I think I ask I, in re like realistically and this it, again, have an extreme side i ask that question almost every day like do i actually did i spend any time today doing something that had eternal significance what did my day matter today and and that was i don't i don't really know why but that just felt like a normal question as i grew up see but rob you're in you're in the field that everything you're doing matters like, right. But like, you know, I don't know, in my job, I mean, I don't think any of it matters eternally. 
it's a, sure you know, it's uh, there's there's a way in which you we can think that way there's a way in which that that makes some sense um but i think that that's part of what this year is about is to start seeing that differently right. to start seeing that actually our like god created work so there is no that in one sense there are jobs that don't matter and in another sense work within itself always matters because god created it for us to take part in his eternal work he created and built and and lived and 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 he still functions that way and so he called adam and eve not just to a life of bliss and excitement and um like this is again, it's it's not like he asked Adam and Eve just I said it a couple of times already. Um, I don't want to harp on it. It's not like he just said, Adam and Eve, just reproduce. No, he said, he said, work the land. He said, he said, extend the territory. It's hard work what he asked them to do, but he was going to be present with them in it. Now the toil and stuff comes out of the fall, I think, but it, it's not that it's um I think that we just overdo that in some ways. That's where my extreme nature can get me in trouble is that I can just really overdo something and then go, oh, that the Lord actually had stuff to teach me in that. That it wasn't like I, okay. I, again, I'm rambling. Probably the most impact I've ever seen I've had in the lives of people in a clear way where those people just responded with, you made my life better has never been in ministry. It was when I worked as a, as a manager at a sporting goods store, because every one of those people, when I just was myself and just cared about them and prayed for them and loved them and helped them and walked with them and tried to make their life better. Every one of them went, what's wrong with you? Why are you like this? And I went, isn't this what people are supposed to do? Like I just, because Christ was in me, it just felt like the right thing. Now in the church, that's not really how people, doesn't matter what your intention are. If you didn't help me, then you're worthless kind of is, can be, can be, not is, can be a regular part of being active in church. And so I, I don't know. I just think I'm just not, I don't, I, my whole purpose in the role I have is to make sure that you guys live the life you're supposed to in the world and change the world. Nobody out there needs to know who I am except for the people I'm in community with. They need you. So you wanna change the world, don't go into ministry vocationally. It's you guys, it's, it's the people that live and breathe every day out in the world. That's who changes the world. which is so fun. It, it honestly was, I had to sacrifice. Um, I had to, I had to be willing to sacrifice all my dreams and be the most uncomfortable possible to do what I do. This is not at all what I would have ever chosen in a million years. Not just, not just the ministry, but also this like literally standing and talking in front of a group of people. I would never do that. Still to this day, I would never choose to do that for a job. Ever. 
it just, it just is what God's asked me to do. So my, my sacrifice, my carrying my cross was God saying, yeah, are you willing to get put in a really uncomfortable position for the rest of your life that won't feel normal ever? And I went, no. <laughs> and then he had to work me into that. But that's why, that's why worship, like doing music, I thought that was my in. I'd done that my whole life so I went oh put a guitar between me and the people put a microphone between me and the people I can hide there I can close my eyes I can sing it looks like I'm praying it's really beneficial and then I can just have fun with these few people on stage and forget that everyone else is there that's what I did and then the Lord's like yeah I want you to never do that again and I went what I'm really rambly today. That's a good sign for our <laughs> class. What everyone else? How's your week been? Great. Is that what you said? Do you have more to say than that? <laughs> um, yeah, the Lord's just been really revealing his love to me, mm. which is really cool. Um, through through people and through my roommates and like mm. just people in the community with, but also just in like even just in worship today. And yeah, just like really I don't know, I've always like heard it and working towards understanding it or whatever, mm. but never had like a full revelation, of, like of the heart. Mm. Um, so yeah, this week's been all that, which has been really cool. That's great. Really good. Yeah. yeah. What a gift. Mm. Knowing what's right and doing what's right hurts sometimes. Yeah. Intellectually, I know I know what's right, and I know what I should be doing in certain aspects of my life. Mm -hmm. It's actually stepping out and stepping into Him and giving that to Him, saying, "Take this." Yeah, yeah. I never, growing up and going to church and being around church, I never really understood what the importance of community mm. until now. I think it's kind of jumped up and it, it's, it's, for us, can't speak for her, but like I don't feel, I've always kind of felt like I don't feel like I hear from the Lord mm. directly, but through community I have, mm. which has really made that important. So I, I, I'd like to step out and, and be that for somebody else mm. in their church. Mm -hmm. 
help somebody else mm -hmm. offer what we can. Mm -hmm. That's great. So community's been well, and, and especially my close community mm -hmm. has been like fabulous. Mm -hmm. So I never understood the importance of that. And we had talked about that with Father Stephen early on. They didn't really click at all. Sure. But lately, it's kind of everything mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. You didn't think they did? No. first seven years of our, my marriage, I thought if every time we kind of get into any sort of heated discussion, if I can just immediately go, okay, Lord, what did I do to lead to this and have an internal process? Then I can go to her and say, Hey, I'm really sorry. I did this. And it'll, it'll help the discussion. I, I didn't realize that what I was doing was trying to get away from the fight do a whole bunch of internal processing because I was good at that and or at least I thought I was good at that and then come back with a solution and then she couldn't be mad at me anymore and year seven year seven we blew up everything blew up and I went oh no <laughs> everything I've been trying to do is out the window and uh and just you know, and I realized, and this is the thing is that my wife and I are so different that we're really good balances for one another. So what I needed to be doing was realizing that I needed to learn from her in those moments to have that discussion when she wanted to have it. And by doing that, I would also open up the opportunity for her to see that maybe there was time she should hold on think through it a little bit before she has something to say. And it wasn't until after that year where we both realized we have stuff to learn from one another and not just try and do things our own way. And now we both have a 
there's a balance to both of us in that, that still I'm way more the internal processor and she's way more the external processor, but at least there's been some balance to us in the midst of it that doesn't, but it, but it does mean that there's more fighting and I wouldn't even call it fighting necessarily, but there's just more like conflict. That's the word. There's more conflict. Um, and I was trying to avoid conflict entirely. I thought I could r religiousize the conflict and there's no way around that. You just can't. And so I, I, yeah, so the presence was a big one for me too, because I, I think I thought, Hey, I want to do all of this right. And I want to do it for the Lord. But what I didn't realize was it caused me to be not present in ways that the Lord was like, I can't actually get away from that if I'm going to get married. And I can't give my whole life to just ministry in the church and not see my kids if I'm going to get married and have kids. But I thought, well, I've got this mission from the Lord. I'll just do everything for that. And then, yeah. And then you get year, you know, two years into having a, a, a little baby at home and realize, I don't know if I've seen him for two years. And just wasn't present. Ministry was so important that it actually was an idol is what it was. So, and being good at it was probably the real idol, if I'm being honest. It wasn't just the ministry itself. It was being good at being a minister. But praise the Lord for his correction. That's what I say. Because, yeah, he, he puts us on the right path. Mm -hmm. I loved Stephen's story today of Ambrose's hands all over his face, his grubby little hands. My 15-year-old is still like that. It's not hands. Well, actually, no, he will come up to me and just put his hand on my face. And every time I'm like, I do not know where that's been. Like, get it away from me. Like, I do not want that anywhere near my face. And yeah, but he's so, my son is so tactile. Like, he loves just touching. And so if we're anywhere near each other, he'll turn his whole body. So just his foot is touching me or his hand is touching me or we're like up against one another. And it's not even like an affectionate thing as much as it is. He just, that physical touch is so like instrumental for him. And he's talking about Ambrose. I was like, oh man, Ambrose is five. My son's 15. <laughs> Still happens. But, oh, my wife's like that too. Like it's, it's just in people, right? Like I don't. It doesn't matter where we are. Oh, the wife, she used to have her hands in her pockets because she just put her hands down on me. Yes. And I'm like, please don't sit off the pillows. Let's put her hands down. Don't sit there. Oh, Girl, my goodness. Yeah, my wife's like that too. Like, it, we'll go over to someone's place we've never been before, and she'll sit sideways and lay her legs over top of me because that's just normal. Like, she just, that's what I, she does. So, for somebody that's hot all the time. I, that took a while. I was like, I am on fire. <laughs> Get your legs off of me. <laughs> my, my body is screaming right now. <laughs> Dying. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Anyone else? I have one more to go. Just, uh, Please. Yeah. Just everybody probably saw this already, but every time we go into the entrance, the morning little prayer, that is talking, that is all living sacrifice right there. Mm. That's your picture of, of one go. Right. I, I never realized that until mm. last 
Yeah, it's good. Yeah. And you'll see it everywhere. Like you'll, yeah. it'll, it'll be in your head. Yeah. It's, I, you know, and don't take for granted the, don't take for granted the things you can't shake. Like that's, that's the intention of the spirit. He's doing that. And it's, it could be something bugging you or it could be something that feels really good. But when something's just there and it won't, you can't shake it. Um, yeah, receive it. Don't fight it, receive it. I remember the, for me, it was um, the scripture on, on making your thoughts obedient to Christ. That as a young man, as a teenager, that revolutionized my life. Cause I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was like weeks of like, this is so irritating. Like I'm just like reciting it in my head. And, and honestly, I was just like, I'm just annoyed because this thing won't get out of my head. And I heard this one pastor say it in passing, not relating it at all to things in my life, but that verse just stuck with me. And so finally I just went and read it. And as I was reading it, I could just feel the Lord just went, pray this. And so every time a thought popped into my head that I knew was not a thought that was obedient to Christ, I prayed that verse. And after like, and honestly, I prayed that verse, no exaggeration. I prayed that verse a hundred thousand times over the next few years. Oh boy. That's a good question. Uh, it is first Corinthians 10, five. Is that right? Second Corinthians. Not likely first. These things happen unto them that come upon you in the age that was not love. Oh yeah, it's it's Second Corinthians ten five. Yeah. So if you could start in four, uh, or even I mean you can start at the beginning, but verse three says, "For though we walk in flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion." raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your disobedience is complete, when your obedience is complete. Sorry. And I just went, I went, okay. So my thoughts are supposed to be obedient to Jesus. I have a lot of thoughts that aren't obedient to Jesus. And I was like 15 and just went, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> like that's, that seems like a crazy thing. And so honestly, I would say in a span of two years, I probably prayed that verse a hundred thousand times just over and over and over and over. And every time it popped in my head and there was a few days where I think, I don't know, but I'm guessing I said it 10,000 times in a day where I'm just like over and over and over and over and over. And I was just like, I, I, I can't get this out of my head. And so it was because I stepped into it though, that it became something so progressive for me it probably would have went away if I'd let it. Um, but it changed my life for the better. And I would say my thought life became something where I can only say by the grace of God, there was like victory in my thoughts. Where I mean, I don't really think about things that are just obviously against Christ. They would have to kind of slip by. Um, now, years and years later, I've 
that's changed in the sense that like, I don't pray that all the time anymore, but it's still present and it's still a victory that the Lord has won. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's just been these moments in life. So if anything, whether it's this year, last year, whatever it is, if something just is like, that thing is dogging me, I can't get that phrase or that expression or that verse or that theological truth out of my head. There's a purpose in that. The Lord is in that. So presence, right? There's purpose in that. God has purpose behind it. Yeah. So last week you said, and I was trying to write some notes, you, you, you said reverence must be present. And so I said, Rob took it for granted that he could attain this and it had something to do with when you were in the charismatic church and if mm -hmm. that's not correct. I, do you remember saying that? It was something about there needs to be reverence and you kind of took it for granted that you could just get that whenever you wanted it. Well, yeah, I don't know if this is what I was talking about. It makes me think of how I treated my relationship with the Lord. Like he spoke to me so clearly. Yeah. Yeah. It was the voice of God. The yes. voice of God was so present that I just thought that that's how everyone lived and it was accessible for anyone at any time. Yeah. So when you say reverence must be, so I guess not to take it for granted and not um, make it a common thing, except it seems to be common. You guys always talk like that. I mean, no, I like for me, I would say what I felt before, it's a little hard to describe. I don't, I don't, because it, not because it was like, oh, it's so amazing. Nobody can understand it. I don't mean like that. I just mean, I don't know what words to put on it, what it felt like and what it, what the experience was, but something that was common for me throughout, like for 15 years ish, 12, between 12 and 15 years, somewhere in there, um, all of a sudden got stopped. And I have not heard him like that since. I have had these moments where he's allowed me to feel his presence and it's literally like a millisecond for a millisecond. I can feel his presence. Like I once did all the time. And I'm just like, immediately I'm bawling. I'm like, this is the best. I'm like, just like, I'm a big baby all of a sudden and missing it and all these things. But hearing his voice is different now. There's nothing. It's um, everything changed. Why would he, why would that need to happen? <laughs> Good question. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be here today. Uh, I, I never would have started studying theology and studying the scriptures like I do. Um, I would never have fallen in love with the uh, sacraments, the historic church, um, history. I never felt a need for any of that because God was so present. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that is really what it was. And he's not, he's not been disciplining me. Um, He's, he's actually helping me see strengths he gave me uh, and parts of my calling that I didn't know were present and I didn't have to be active in. So I just wasn't active in them. But now, all these years later, I, I just wouldn't go back. I'd, I'd like it back with what I, I currently know and, 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 and know of him. But no, I'd never take it back the way it was. There's a certain authority that goes with that. Uh, when when God, God told me, then all of a sudden you become important. Yes. Uh, and and when you if you were con to continue or to enter into ministering to other people, God told me you have that almost doctrine by experience instead of doctrine by doctrine by doctrine by the word. Yeah. And yeah. So and I would say my doctrine by experience that is true. It was never true that I felt like I was 
Like I would say before even that. Uh, I, what did, well, answer, part, partly answering her question so that you yeah. did, were not susceptible to that. Sure. Because sadly, by vision uh, observing, that is what happens to the majority of those. They become yeah. important. Themselves. Yeah, it definitely can be. Uh, I would say the Lord was correcting my worship was what I felt I feel like he's been doing all along. Um, I'm a worshiper at heart. It's all I want to do. It's all I want to do. I want to worship, worship, worship all the time. And so everything I do is for the sake of worship. And I, I knew him only through my experience. And so my versions and ways and expectation of worship um, was based on me, not based on what he was calling me to. Um, I wasn't worshiping God as he truly is, but God as I thought he was. Um, and so he's been correcting that, which I'm really, really, really thankful for. Okay, well, um, let's jump in. There's a good possibility I'll have to go to the washroom halfway through. I've been drinking a lot of coffee today, uh, but I'm going to do my best not to. And I'll make sure I turn my mic off for you, Noel, before I go. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if she actually is listening or not, but that's, that'll be for everyone that has to listen to it later also. Okay, uh, so today we are taking a look at the Ten Commandments, which I am uh, really excited about. <clears throat> um, as, we, as we look at the Ten Commandments today, I'm going to stick pretty closely to uh, the newly released uh, Anglican Catechism called To Be a Christian. Um, if you ever are just wondering, like basic answers to theological questions, I would highly recommend it. Um, it's, it's really helpful just because it gives you a short paragraph on a massive amount of topics. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stick to that, though, because normally in the catechism, you would teach through uh, the Ten Commandments, through the Lord's Prayer, and then through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and so that's what this one does as well. Uh, their overview of the Ten Commandments is thorough, which allows us to touch on each section. What I hope this will do for us today is it'll help us reestablish the Ten Commandments in its rightful place inside of a Christian experience uh, in the world. We have a tendency to make the, it's can be called the Decalogue, can be called the Ten Commandments. Um, we can make the Decalogue into an Old Testament thing which uh, when saying that, we usually mean that it's not totally necessary for us anymore because we have a new or better covenant so we can get rid of everything behind. The truth is there's no argument as to whether we have a new or better covenant, that is true. But what we can't do is reject something from the Old Testament that Jesus didn't reject. So Jesus comes and he fulfills the law on our behalf. He unites us with himself so that we are now seen as the righteous covenant keeping people of God as he always intended us to be. But he does not say that, the, that um, following the moral code in the Old Testament is something that is no longer necessary and that we can just do away with completely. So is the law over us anymore? Do we need to follow it as law? No. But it still reveals a moral code that God has called his faithful people to live uh, in our world and that Jesus is uh, a confirmation of that. 
So today we're going to take a look at the Ten Commandments. We'll take a look at uh, the letter of St. Paul to the church in Rome to see what he has to say about the law and at the life of Jesus to reveal what God intends for us today. So I'm going to start with Paul and we're going to go to Romans 7 as our key text that we're going to read through. Um, but before we read through that, I want to just give you the kind of context of the chapters just preceding Romans 7 to give you kind of a lay of the land as to why he's talking about what he's talking about in chapter 7. Uh, so first, the context, uh, if we, in, in his letter to the Romans, Paul is looking to give the Christians in Rome the gospel as he sees it or understands it. It's a rich and deep theological letter. And in chapter five, Paul explains that there was uh, only death to be found in the line of Adam because of sin. But that now, because of Christ, there is life. So what once was only death to be found, we now have life, to be, life because of Jesus. Then in chapter six, he goes on to explain that grace is abundant, but that we shouldn't be careless with sin or willfully choose sin because grace is so good. We have died to sin in our baptism, Paul says, meaning we cannot be people that live in sin. Paul continues by speaking about how we are now slaves to the righteousness of Christ. We no longer serve under the law, but live under grace. This brings us to chapter 7, where Paul is explicitly speaking of being released from the law, but also the purpose and the blessing of the law for us today. So let's read the first six verses as a start. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from, the law, from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We see that the law is defeated by death. Paul uses the example of the law of marriage. It is broken by death, but not before. Here he uses this example to say that we also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What was it in chapter 6 that Paul says was our death? It was baptism. The sacrament of baptism is intrinsically tied to the death of Christ, meaning it becomes our death, breaking the power of the law and sin over us. But those of us that have been baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. 
meaning the law no longer has authority over us. So let's keep reading in verse 7. We're going to read right to the end of the seventh chapter here. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For if I do not understand my own actions... For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, uh, for I do, sorry, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. That it is good, excuse me. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what, sorry, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here, Paul makes clear that the law must not be seen as wrong. The law brought clarity to what was sin. Sin is wrong, and it was sin that was bringing death to, to us all, but it was the law that was revealing and judging that sin. Notice verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This section can sound a little confusing, but the point overall is clear. The law was righteous, and it revealed sin, and Paul's sin was heightened because of the law of God. This does not mean that we are still under the law in the same way, or that we should subject ourselves to it in exactly the same measure, 
but that the main thrust of the law is still to reveal sin and point us towards righteousness. That is what the Ten Commandments should do for us today, to reveal a moral code that God has for us to follow. While we walk and live in the grace that Jesus won for us in his death and on our behalf. It's with this in mind that we can approach the Ten Commandments. This year, we will talk significantly more about what uh, you do with your life, meaning your actions, and that's purposeful. Where we are looking to have our minds transformed by learning about Jesus in our classes on theology and looking to have our communion with God transformed through rhythms of prayer and reflection of his goodness, we are also transformed in our will and actions by receiving God's word and his example. Jesus gives us moral instruction in many ways, but it cannot be ignored that he ties all moral teaching to the Ten Commandments. He first summarizes them in the, first, in the two great commandments of love God and love your neighbor in Matthew 6, but also expands them in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did not fulfill the law so that we could move past or beyond the moral compass of God's nature. He fulfilled it for us, knowing we could not, and then calls us to do our best in walking according to the moral ways of God as an act of worship and obedience to God. So this leads us to the Ten Commandments themselves. Take a moment. How are we so far? Flowing okay? Yeah? Okay. So to begin, I want to make sure that we are grounded in the context the Ten Commandments were given. Then we can understand our current reality of relationship with them. When we read about what the setting was that God gave the Ten Commandments, we see that this was after he had saved his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. The plagues, the Passover sacrifice, and the crossing of the Red Sea were all used by God to free Israel from Egypt. He then led them to Mount Sinai, where he gave them the Ten Commandments as covenant obligations. God came to them in fire and smoke that consumed the mountain. He spoke to Moses audibly from the midst of the cloud. He was demonstrating his supreme power and holiness, his otherness and superiority to all the other gods and powers on the earth. God in his goodness knew that Israel needed a revelation of who he is. Their time in captivity would have brought about a different understanding and thinking about gods as a whole. Yahweh was not to be considered among their understanding of the Egyptian gods. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of his character. They are a mirror to show himself to us. They are given by God to his people and us to guide us to love God and others as we should. They are to help us live according to our created nature. 
So I, I want I want you to just think about that for a second because even the idea of having a moral code does not usually come uh, bring us to a spot of realizing that the purpose of the moral code is to help us live according to our nature. These aren't things that are meant to war against our nature and make us uncomfortable. These are things that war against the flesh, sinfulness, so that we can live according to our true created nature. To help us understand the Ten Commandments, uh, let's see where we got for markers here. To be a Christian gives us four guiding principles that you can see as overarching principles throughout all ten. There is a call to positive action. There is the forbidding whatever hinders its keeping, meaning the law's keeping, uh, calls for loving God, glorifying obedience, and a call for others to be governed by it. Forbidding whatever hinders its keeping. Am I out of the way still? You can still see. So the four are, once again, number one, a call to positive action. Number two, forbidding whatever hinders its keeping. Number three, calls for loving God, glorifying obedience. And number four, call for others to be governed by it. God made mankind to love him perfectly, but sin has corrupted our nature, leading us to resist him to ignore his will and to care more for ourselves than for our neighbors until God has completed his work of grace in me, in all of us at the end of the age, I will be unable to perfectly love him as I am created to. But now as I've been crucified with Christ and raised up in him through baptism, I now might, I have the ability to love him as I ought, to delight in his will as he heals my nature, I'm able to live for his glory. So how then does God heal my nature in these days? He does this through faith, 
repentance, through our baptism, through the Eucharist. God in his grace washes away my sin and he gives me his Holy Spirit and makes me a member of Christ, a child of God and an heir of the kingdom of heaven. He has given me the church to exercise godly authority and discipline over me through the ministry of clergy and of other teachers and pastors and the community at large. He has also given me the Holy Eucharist where I hear the law and his good news of forgiveness. There he calls me back to my baptismal covenant promises. He gives me the ability to have my faith renewed and to receive his grace and forgiveness so I can go out and walk in the ways of Christ all over again. Through all of this healing, we are given strength to live according to the ways of Christ, which was a fulfillment of the law of the Lord. No, we're not under the law any longer. We are under or in union with Christ who has fulfilled the law. Now it is our responsibility to receive the grace of God and the healing power of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the sacraments, the church, and in sanctification. As we receive that grace, we are made able to live as Jesus did, fulfilling the true nature of the law of God on earth. Our testimony is not a people under the law, but a people that are being transformed by Christ to live according to his ways, who fulfilled the law of God and now has given us strength to follow in his footsteps. That was a lot. Every once in a while. Yeah, all of it. (laughs) Every time I go through it, I'm like, I should just load that down. So how does God heal our nature in these days? Baptism. Yeah. So we think about Acts 2. We have uh, repent and be baptized. And the whole scripture is talking about faith and repentance over and over again. And it always has this allusion consistently to baptism and the Eucharist. And then we see consistently that the church is admonished to devote themselves and follow leaders that would just continue to call them back to this. That the church could actually, the church as a whole, not just those in leadership, but the church in the, of a whole, as, as a whole, excuse me, would call you to faith and repentance, to call you back to your baptismal vows, will call you back to the table where you get to receive Christ again. You want to know how your nature, your, your, the parts of you that do not seem to be under Christ as they should be, you want to know how those get healed. This is how. It's to come back over and over again to Jesus in faith, in repentance, and to receive him all over again. So let's take a look at the commandments themselves. 
Because what we want to do today is seeing that Christ fulfilled them, but does not remove all moral code from our uh, nature. But instead, as he fulfilled them, the question then is, how are we supposed to walk that out now? How are we supposed to abide by this moral code? So go to Exodus 20. Because we're going to go through them just one by one. So Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are the two places that they're explicitly written out in their entirety. So we're just going to go through them one by one. Verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first commandment intentionally. If this commandment is kept, it stands to reason that the rest of the commandments will then fall in line. On the other side... If you break any of the other commandments, you've broken this one as well. So to break any of the commandments is to break, love the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And to keep, love the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, is to keep the rest. We're being told here that there should be nothing in our lives more important than God and obeying his will. Our love, trust, worship, obedience is meant to be all held for him. This also includes our reverence. We should not have reverence for anything more than we do for God. I, I want to touch on that one. I, I pull it out intentionally. I want to touch on it for a moment because I think that we've lost the fear of God in our culture. We've talked about that in our last class. And just one way of uh, helping us see if we are reverent before the Lord as we should be, um, just think for a second. You don't have to write this down. Think about how you come to a worship setting. How you show up to church. How you arrive at times of prayer. How do you prepare yourself to meet with the Lord? Do you prepare yourself? Now think in contrast to that, have you ever gone into a building anywhere, any type of building in the entire world, wherever you've been and felt like a reverence? Felt as if you needed to be careful. You needed to be attentive. You needed to watch how you acted how you spoke. Think of how people go to uh, elite art galleries in the world. <laughs> Think of how some people go to a football stadium. Iconic buildings, historic homes, etc. These places have a sort of reverence to them. Everyone handles themselves 
a specific way when they go to these buildings, to these places. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's something good about that. But the question is, does the reverence you show in those moments outweigh the reverence you show God when you go to prayer? When you enter into worship? When you are going to the Eucharist? When you are attending or being a part of a baptism? Is there reverence for you? Do you think of it as something that you should have reverence in your own heart for? Maybe reverence isn't where you find it the most difficult, but God knows that we are drawn to our sinful, by our sinful hearts, excuse me, to trust in ourselves, to trust in our possessions, to trust in our relationships, to trust in our successes, to bring us meaning in this world. We are drawn as Eve was in the garden to put our trust in our decisions and follow our hearts rather than the will and word of God. Now hear how I put that because I said it very intentionally. Eve followed her heart. Whether you answer yes or no to those questions, we have to remember that we are not under the law any longer. God knows that we can't keep our worship of God totally pure and holy. Perfection in our worship lives is not possible by ourselves. But Jesus did worship God perfectly. And it is through him, in the power of the Spirit, Christ is our mediator, that our worship is received by God. We seek to worship God in holiness and perfection, not because we actually can be perfect, but because Christ already has been. Any thoughts or comments before we go to number two? Can you just repeat that? We are drawn, as Eve was in the garden, to put our trust in our decisions and follow our hearts rather than the will and the word of the Lord. <coughs> yeah. We just can't pretend that there isn't a fleshly desire in us that is sinful, that we're drawn to those things and that they feel good when we appease them. It's one of the things that I, I try to, I try, especially more recently to, to help my kids see is that sin doesn't always feel bad. It leads to death. But it doesn't always feel bad anymore. I've had a lot of friends who have struggled with addictions in their lives and 
almost every one of them will tell me that the excess of the addiction feels bad, but those individual moments don't. They feel really good. But it's, it's not real. It's fleeting and it leads to death. They, they die every time. And that's why the excess, it always leads to death. You, you want to hear the testimony of what sin does to us. Talk, talk to an addict that's walked themselves into you know, despair. Anyone else? a really quiet moment until then. Okay, let's go to number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In its plain reading, we understand this to mean that we should not make any man-made images of God or of other gods, nor of any type of image for the purpose of worshiping them. As we saw in our image-bearing class, the people of Israel immediately worshiped in a way that was opposed to this and the first commandment. Israel went back to worship to the worshiping ways of Egypt Rather than worshiping God as he commanded, Egypt and many other nations worshiped false gods by means of images or idols. They believed that they could gain favor with these gods through their worship and their image making. God of it, the God of Israel separates himself from these ways of worship. He does not need our worship, nor does our worship gain us favor with him. His favor was given as a gift of grace, and our response then is meant to be once one of worship. Unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel consistently choosing to worship these God, other gods and not God alone. One of the main questions that arises from this commandment is, are all carved images wrong then? One way of answering that, and we're not going to get into all of it, but one way of answering that is pretty clear when we look at the construction of the tabernacle. God commands that there be carvings and pictures made for the tabernacle. Now, these didn't represent God, nor other false gods. They may have represented angels, trees, fruit of the garden, or they may have been uh, items by which God would show himself, but they were not worshipped. Today, we may not have issues with carved images as idols, but that is not the extent of idolatry in scripture. We see that relationships, habits, aspirations, and ideologies can all become idols. The question we must ask ourselves is whether we are looking to these things for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, despair, or sadness. Think about that again. 
Are you looking to anything but God for salvation from misery, guilt, poverty, loneliness, despair, or sadness? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are warnings for us against idolatry in each one of those areas. This means that we must be prepared to search our hearts to see if this is true for us today. Remember that even Jesus was tempted to break this commandment, the commandment of idolatry. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we see that Satan tempts Jesus to bow down and worship him, promising him the kingdom of the world and to find a way to avoid the pain of the crucifixion. The devil promised Jesus salvation from many things, including poverty, hatred, and physical suffering. All he needed to do was worship someone other than God. Instead, Jesus worshiped God faithfully and perfectly. Jesus was willing to accept poverty, hatred, humiliation, physical suffering in the crucifixion because he knew it was the will of his Father and what would lead to eternal life. Think about that again. Do you turn to anything for salvation other than God to save you from poverty? Misery? Guilt? Loneliness? despair or sadness. The Bible teaches us that we must keep from idolatry because it actually causes us to be like the thing that we're worshiping. If we have idols in our life, we will be emptied of life. We will be alienated from God and will bring us, it will bring us only to death. As we saw when we looked at Exodus 32 in our image-bearing class, we will be 
a stiff-necked people who are like the lifeless idols of the world rather than the life-dwelling idols of God that we were meant to be. Any questions or thoughts before we move forward? Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Very simply, this is telling us that the name of God, all forms of the name of God are to be used with reverence. We should not, we should never use the Lord's name in a way that is demeaning to him or demeaning of his name. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 tells us that there is power in the name of Jesus. Whatever is connected to God is holy and must be treated as such. To use his name in a way of profanity or even to use it without care or reverence shows a lack of or an absence of reverence for God himself. It's not only in the obvious ways of using his name lightly or irreverently that we must be careful though. For example, to use names of God in acts of worship falsely would be using his name in vain. If worship is only to further your own goal of being a good person, if worship is only to make you feel better and find peace, if worship is only self-serving and actually isn't worship at all, if you've made all the actions of worship about you, be careful that you're not taking his name in vain using his name vainly. One scholar that I read on this had this amazing section in his book that talked about uh, the fact that we also carry his name. What this is about is about claiming to be a Christian, but not living like Christ. we are vainly using his name. This means keeping his promises, upholding honor in relationships, having charity in society, uprightness in your work, as well as holiness in worship. All of this is about carrying the name of God as it should be and not using the Lord's name in vain. Any thoughts before we jump to the next one?
I've always found it very interesting that people never hurt themselves and say Satan or Buddha or yeah. Using using the Lord's name as many in vain is like it's very common, but nobody uses anybody else's name in vain. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I think you're right. I think that if you started saying that, people would accuse you of bigotry and hatred and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. But it also, I mean None of the other names matter. No. It's proof that there is only one God. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I want you to hear, though, that there's that I, I pointed out just three ways to talk about that our worship. When we're worshiping, are we actually worshiping? Uh, actually, our words, how we use his name by speaking it, saying it, and how we act. Um, I, I don't want to do away with actually saying the Lord's name in vain. And I've heard that, especially in more modern teaching, that, oh, it wasn't actually about whether you say his name in those moments or not. I just don't buy that. Um, I don't think that's a good teaching of the text. Um, but I don't think that they're wrong to say that it actually does mean more than just more than just how we actually say it. Okay, so number four. Uh, we're just gonna, it's just, just verse eight, eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shavath, which means rest. God commanded Israel to set apart each seventh day following six days of work for rest and worship. The idea of Sabbath is not about laziness, nor about Old Testament law, but about connection with the ways of God in creation. On the seventh day, God rested, which means that in keeping the Sabbath, we are called to live according to God's ways. It brings rhythm to life. It demonstrates that we are not slaves to unending labor or busyness, but that we have an awareness that God is Lord of all time, including my time. Time belongs to God, was ordered by him in creation, and is still under his rule and reign. We see that Jesus' interaction with the Sabbath was different than that of the Pharisees, but it was not because Jesus abolished the Sabbath, but he fulfilled it and lived according to it. Because Jesus fulfilled it, it is now in Christ that we find our rest and in him that our rhythm is set in this life. This is why on the first day of the week, we meet because it is to align with the resurrection of Jesus and to be and be a testimony to the resurrection to the world. Gathering together for worship on Sunday speaks to the world that we are a resurrection people. Keeping this day free from work and for the Lord only speaks to the world that we are a resurrection people and are set in his ways. It is in the gathering of God's people for worship 
that we have our Sabbath day. Verse 12, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This means that while still a child, we should obey our parents. As we grow, we are still called to honor, serve, respect, love, and care for them. Jesus is our example of this. We see that as an adult, he still honored and cared for his mother, even unto the point of death. When hanging on the cross, Jesus looked out for his mother, entrusting her care to his beloved disciple. This is deeply tied to, though it may not be exactly the same, as honoring all generations of people and those that are over us to lead us. God has built into humanity a desire and need to honor and respect those who are older than us in whatever form that takes. The scriptures are also clear that this will not likely or this will likely, excuse me, not come naturally to us, but must be taught by leaders and received by us all. Proverbs 22:15 says, "Folly is bound up in the heart of a child." From our earliest days, our hearts and sinful desires will want to lead us. Again, hear that. From our earliest days, our hearts and sinful desires will want to lead us. Not in a positive way. There must be choices from a young age through to old age where we choose obedience and honor rather than it just coming naturally. This does not mean that parents have all authority over us. All authority is under God and should be subject to him. If someone abuses their authority, including parents, this is not God's way for them. And we should not follow them in their disobedience to God. So by abuse, that could look in a lot of different ways just in follow in leading someone away from Jesus to actual physical, emotional, verbal, mental abuse. To not follow a parent that is leading you away from Jesus in any form is not dishonoring them. Any questions or thoughts? Think about that for a second, though. God puts, you shall have no other gods before me in the same list as honor your father and mother. Those are in the same list. So some can feel really heavy and some can feel like, oh, okay. Watch that. Not because uh, some will feel like, oh, I, I think I get this. That's great. If that's the feeling, then that's great. But don't just slough any of these off. Verse 13, you shall not murder. 
God has declared all human life as sacred from conception to death. I am not allowed to take another person's life into my hands at any point. God teaches us that we are to cause all others to flourish around us. Jesus, once again, is the example of this to us. He sought the well-being of all who came to him, even if that person came to him to cause him harm. Think of how he acted in the garden. Jesus was interested in the protection and the safety of the guards that would later scourge, mock, and spit on him. Jesus truly, completely demonstrated the sanctity of human life. Jesus even goes as far as to say that anger is related to murder. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Anger that comes out of pure love and as a result of caring for the well-being of my neighbor is not always sinful, but that's unusual anger. Usual anger is often based more on fear, pride, revenge. This anger is sinful always and connected in the scriptures to murder. Now, there's murder of a, of a human life that isn't in these categories, obviously, but those are the obvious ones. But I, I, I just want it to be said so that we're all on the same page. Abortion, suicide, any forms of genocide, infanticide, I don't know if that's how you say it, infanticide, infanticide, and euthanasia. The church has always held that all of those are murder, always. There was abortion present in the early church and in the days of Jesus. So in case you ever want to have that conversation and we need to talk it through, I'm happy to have that conversation, but it is always murder. What is it? Uh, it's kind of connected to, well, it's connected to abortion really, but it's uh, like a post birth. Yeah. It would be considered like uh, places where if you couldn't check whether the uh, whether the sex of the baby like long long ago whether the sex of the baby was boy or girl and every girl was killed because they needed more boys or you think in the days of moses where they were just killing all the hebrew uh, babies those sorts of things it's a genocide of infants essentially uh, this is not a political statement just before I say it, <laughs> uh, but I think be careful of what you are, what we are currently on the edge of legislation for in Canada. Uh, the MAID laws, M-A-I-D, yeah. um, are really, really important for Christians to understand because they're not Christian values. Um, and secondly, uh, they are on the edge of being able to uh, euthanize 
chronically ill and mentally disabled persons. Um, there are other countries that do that already, um, but we have to have the we have to be honest and have the conversation around what these things look like. Um, we have people in our church that we pray for on a regular basis that have chronic illness. Yep. And on a bad day, would prefer. major, major depression day, they go, it would just be easier. Nine days out of 10, they don't think that. But that one day. Yeah, they, uh, there are so many ways that they wrap that up. That, like they have the, you know, you have the right to die. And yeah. Eventually that would become the duty to die. Yeah. If you take it out. And, full, yeah. And you just have to look at where other places do it. Because other places that are, are, that are ahead of us on this, it is now, it's already duty. And the doctors then convince them. And that's just clear. Like that's not a, that's not in question. They are, there are, you can go online and watch videos of doctors convincing Down syndrome kids that they should get euthanized. So where, it's heartbreaking. Then where is the church in this? The church is active. The, honestly, the, and uh, the, the Anglican church in Canada is on the move on this front constantly. They are, outspoken they are at they are on the steps of the parliament buildings in ottawa they are i've been there they are active and they are calling their people to task but that but this is us we're the church so the question is where are you on it not just you personally but like all of us because if all of us are going where's the church and this is this is the argument i often hear you got to take this with you do something about it because you're the church. I'm the church. So you got to take it to, and again, it's not a political statement. You have to take it into every poll, every voting decision. You got to take it into every, like, but it's not just these. There's a whole bunch of other things too you have to take with you. As a Christian, voting is very, very hard. It's massive. It's important, but it is hard. Because the scriptures call us to things that are only found in one party or another for the most part. Don't believe the lie that Christianity fits into one political party. It doesn't. I've done it all. I've done the research and I've talked to the Christians in different parties about it and they all know it. So don't make it political. Make it your moral obligation as a Christian. So what do we do about it? How do, we, how do we actually do something? And it takes more than social media posting, but maybe it starts there. I don't know. The quick question, you made laws, those are tied to like euthanasia and stuff? Or yeah, there's a, it, it's, it's tied to the chronic illness and mentally oh, disabled, okay. and, but there's a lot more to it than that. And some of the laws have already been passed. It's um, the acronym for medical assistance in dying. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, so just be active, be present. With murder. Yeah. Where does, like, if you're looking at like biblical wars. And, yeah. Good question. Uh, like even David against the Philistines. Like yeah. what's, I have, that seemed almost blessed. 
It was. So I have I have a response to that once I do this. Okay. Okay. That's a good question. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay. Uh, some areas of anger that are connected to murder. Abuse, abandonment, recklessness. That means like being reckless with someone else's life, not really caring. Um, and because of anger, I mean, uh, hatred and derision. These are, these, these don't um, come out of nowhere. These are things that the scriptures talk about in connection to anger. And so that's why, that's why we pull them out is to say, God is actively speaking to these things. So we should pay attention to them. If there's hatred in our heart for someone, there's something that needs to be done about that. Okay, so to your question, there is a difference of opinion and I'll let you guys have the difference of opinion from me if you want, uh, by some on whether causing harm even unto death is always sin. The Anglican Catechism is clear about where it stands. It says it this way. There are rare times when the claims for, of justice, mercy, and life itself may require doing harm or even bringing death to others. It is the particular task of the government to do this in society. And their reasoning for that comes in Romans 13. Verses one to four, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So based on that, the, prem, the idea is that New Testament, uh, the New Testament does not completely rule out the necessity of holy war. Just war. Sorry? Just war. Just war, yeah. Holy war probably has other connotations <laughs> yeah we use it of like radicals Jihad. yeah but it's not it's not a um i mean it's an eastern language israel would also call it is a holy war uh what about like self-defense like if, if someone breaks into your house and is gonna like murder your family yeah what good question 
I mean, there's lots to be said around protection and the necessity of protection and all of those sorts of things. Um, I, I don't want to answer it for anyone. Uh, like the early church were pacifists. That's why they, they never took to war ever. So the difference between Christians and, and the Jews, and this is why Rome hated Christians was that they were seen as weak. They wouldn't fight. They wouldn't, they wouldn't go to war. And so Rome actually saw the Christian faith as its downfall because Rome was the powerhouse that would defeat anyone always. And Christians came in and wouldn't fight. And so it made them weak. And then they ended up losing in a war and they went, it must be Christians. You weren't even allowed to be in politics as a Christian in the early church. Like you could have no overlap with any of it at all. Now, their politics and ours is very different. <laughs> the Roman politics and Canadian government system are not even remotely close uh, when you actually know how they work. But <laughs> I'm not saying all the people couldn't fit in both. I'm saying that the actual system is different. Do you have something to say? You? You just kept going. No. <gasps> okay. Okay. Len, never mind. I take it back. <laughs> just kidding. Okay. Let's keep going. We got a few more to go here. Sorry, I'm taking so long. Uh, next, you shall not commit adultery. Marriage is holy. It is a sacrament of the church that was given to us to embody the reality of Christ and his bride, the church. Married persons are to be faithful to their spouses as long as they both live. This means that any sexual activity with anyone other than my spouse is adulterous activity. The scripture tells us that marriage uh, has four ultimate purposes. You could maybe you could reword these into other purposes, but um, but I seem I thought four made sense. Uh, first, it's for the proper expression of desire and passion. You see that really clearly in Song of Solomon. So the proper expression of desire and passion. Two, for the procreation of children that are then to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Three, it is a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. And four, it is for mutual friendship help and comfort both in prosperity and adversity should i read them again yeah okay one the proper expression of desire and passion two everyone's got that one i can move on two the procreation of children that should be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Three, bless you. <laughs> it is a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. Four, 
for mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. I don't think, sorry, four, last one. Uh, mutual friendship, help, and comfort, both in prosperity and adversity. Those are not ordered in like what's most important. It's not like one to four is most to least important. It's just four uh, things that the scriptures tell us marriage is for. Being faithful in marriage is to exclusively devote oneself in heart, mind, and body to one's spouse in the marriage covenant. Simply put, nothing should be held back between spouses. This should tell us something about divorce. It's not God's intent. In fact, the scriptures are even stronger than that. We're taught, that, we're taught by the scriptures that God hates divorce. It severs what he has joined causes immeasurable pain, suffering, and brokenness. We're taught that this commandment is broken through a number of different acts. I'm just going to list them fast. You don't have to write them all down. Fornication, uh, same-sex gender, uh, sexual acts, rape, incest, pedophilia, bestiality, pornography, lust, or any other self-centered sexual desire or behavior. Those are all listed throughout scripture as sexual acts that would break marriage covenant. Not break it as in like it's broken. Sorry, go against the marriage covenant. We are called even within marriage to live a life of chastity. This means that I must refrain from sexual acts outside of marriage and I must respect myself and all others in body, mind, and spirit. I must practice sexual purity, viewing others as image bearers of God and not as objects for personal gratification. Any questions before we go on to the next one? We have a couple classes, one on marriage, uh, one on chastity, um, and one on sexuality that will cover that a little more thoroughly. And we'll get into different aspects of that in each one of those classes as well. Number eight, you shall not steal. God is the creator and Lord over all, and we are called to love him and our neighbors. This means that I cannot take what does not belong to me. And I must be true, honest, and just in all of my dealings with other people. Everything we own is under the lordship of Christ, and we care for it as a steward of that creation. Trusting in the Lord is also about trusting that whatever he entrusts to others should be respected by us as well. Whether that is reputation, wages, honor, credit, answers, inventions, friendship, hope, goodwill, property, etc. All of those things can be stolen and we must actively work to respect it as someone else's possession. God gives us abilities and as I am able, I should earn my own living so that I may set aside offerings for worship to give to the poor and to care for dependents. 
we're also called to give God glory to God through all of our possessions, gifts, and abilities. Why do I bring that up in the midst of this? Because to take from someone else what is not yours is to act as if that was not a gift from God to them. It's to completely disregard what God has given them and not you. Think of it this way. If we're supposed to offer everything up to God at the end of the day, will you be able to offer praise to God at the end of the day with something that you've stolen from someone else? Another thought about theft, another way of thinking about it, and a a really important one, is we should consider whether there is any way that we are stealing from the Lord. Has God demanded anything of us? Of course, our lives in all ways. What about really practically? Well, as I said above, God calls us to give offerings for worship, to give alms to the poor, and to care for dependents if we have them. There's also the point of tithe, 10% of our income. That's just meant to be given to the, the storehouse for the work of God. I believe that The scriptures challenge us to actually give more than the minimum. The scriptures challenge us to be generous in everything that we do, not only give the the very least that we can give, but there is a minimum that's shown throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 14, Luke 21 reveal this to us. If God is requiring these things of us, if he's asking us to give these things, the question we have to ask ourselves is whether we are stealing from the Lord if we won't give it to him. So don't bring any of this up to force a change in you. Actually bring it up so that you can take it to prayer. What would God say to you about tithing, giving offerings, about giving alms to the poor? Does God have anything to say in those areas of your life? You should ask him. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This means that we are called to speak lovingly, truthfully, and graciously of our neighbors at all times. We must keep our tongues from lying, from slander, and from gossip. This is a significant part of our story. In the life of Jesus, we see that the Sanhedrin hired witnesses to lie about him. The death of our Lord was moved along through the lying of neighbors. But he doesn't even, he doesn't return uh, from there. He doesn't respond to their sinfulness with deceit himself. Instead, he reveals himself in all truth, which only seals his persecution. We're called to proclaim the truth 
to proclaim the good news of God, anything that does not line up with that should not be spoken of. This means gossip and slander are never permitted for a Christian. Never is the key word there. Gossip and slander are never permitted for a Christian. On the other hand, if someone is living a life of crime or is violating others or hurting another person, and we are not advocating for the helpless and protecting the community, we must speak up because that then is speaking the truth, even if it will hurt the person doing the crime. I think you understand what I mean there. Sometimes when someone is doing something wrong, we think it's the loving thing to not say anything about it. And it's actually the opposite. The opposite is true because we're meant to bear, we're not meant to bear false witness. So that means if someone is terrible, don't say they're good. I had a friend who had to give a reference for someone who uh, lived in one of his properties and it was a good friend of his, someone he'd grown up with and he was terrible in the property. And so then mysteriously, this person put him down as a reference and he went, oh, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and he spoke truth. And that person did not get the home they were trying to get because of it. But he listened to the command. He would not bear false witness which would have been to say he was great. He wasn't great. He did terribly. So we have to be honest. Number 10, you shall not covet. Covetousness is a big thing in our world today. Think about the advertising industry for a moment. It's built on the premise that we should cause someone to want something they don't have. And if we can show them a real life person that has it and how amazing it is for them, then we'll cause others to want it too. The problem is this is a killer to the human soul. We are not to covet what others have. Instead, I'm called, just as you are, to walk in humility and be content with what God has given me. Covetousness acts in opposition to this kind of humility. It causes discontentment in mind and spirit, and it grows in the heart, and it leads to sin such as idolatry, adultery, and theft. Jesus practices contentment as an antidote to covetousness. In contentment, he took on the form of a servant without wealth or possessions, and in his earthly life, loved and trusted the Father in all things. He knew the Father was taking care of him in every way he needed. He has 
now prepared an inheritance for me. So I can give freely because I know that the Father cares for me more than the birds of the air or the beasts of the field. And if they are taken care of by the Father, then I know that I will be too. Any thoughts on that? Any of those before we wrap it up? Just have a quick addition at the end. So we've just taken an extensive look through the Ten Commandments, but we must keep in mind that it is going to be impossible for you to keep these perfectly. Remember that the purpose of the law, according to Paul, was to reveal our sin, to reveal our need for Christ, to reveal that we cannot do it on our own. This means that we have no hope except through Jesus. He has perfectly fulfilled the Ten Commandments and even goes beyond to perfectly fulfilled everything he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus perfectly did it all. Now, through our baptism, we are united with him, born again into the life of Christ, and are now called to walk in obedience as an act of worship under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Obedience is always due to God. It's always due to him. Despite my sin and weakness, we must strive always to obey him, looking to Jesus for salvation and the Holy Spirit for strength. And when we fall, which we know we will, we get to come to God in repentance so that he would wash, so that we would be washed clear and clean in order to step out and try it once again. We are sanctified over the whole journey of our lives. And through each step, we are brought into the fullness of God's will more and more. So it's true that the Ten Commandments no, hold, no longer hold authority over us as law, but they do give us a path of moral and ethical ways to follow as we follow Christ's example who fulfilled the law on our behalf. Amen. Any thoughts or questions or statements? Mm -hmm. Just interesting when you were men mentioned Second uh, Corinthians ten five uh, earlier on talking about yeah the importance of that that actually just became a part of you you yeah. didn't necessarily have to pray each of the words though just a few verses later um, I'll just give this for illustration in verse twelve he says we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Yeah. 
So that uh, if, you, if you you take that particular version and apply basically to on your mother and father on down on yeah. the last six, it applies to all yeah. of them. Interesting opportunities to have some of the major conversations I have of Christianity are with Hutterites. Uh, they live yeah. two miles and six miles, four miles from me kind right. of thing over time. And uh, usually go over there. My friend is the second minister at the yeah. one and yeah. go over there. And then, so what was the lesson today? That's his question. What <laughs> right. was the lesson in the church? Because then right. he'll tell me what they were doing. Yeah. And I happened to be teaching at the local uh, fellowship right. on this particular verse. Right. We were there, we were actually getting the big tire changed on our combine because they had the big jacks and the big, all this yeah. sort of stuff. And it was just convenient to do it that way. And I'm fully welcome to go there and get this sort of thing done. Yeah. What was the lesson that I said that? Well, almost always, they will always defer to speak to me in English. There was German flying all <laughs> over the place. Yeah. And, and then as, as it usually happens there, yeah. You come and you meet with two or three people, and pretty soon there's 23 people there, right. and then they all, and they were just all over the place on this verse. They didn't know it existed. That's right. not how they live. Right. They live to compare themselves among themselves. Among themselves, I yeah. Also, notice that's a working out, shall we say, trait in LDS as right. well. Yeah. But for us, it's no less true. Yeah. If you don't compare yourself with others, yeah. you avoid cheating and lying and right. stealing and 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 yeah. coveting yeah. so it's it's just it's almost a little versus just sort of tucked away in there yeah. and yet is that your answer for your christianity yeah that that, that verse has has been uh in ringing in our clergy's ears for 10 years because our bishop brings it back to us every single time we renew our ordination oh, vows. Okay. He says, uh, only the wise or only the unwise compare themselves among themselves. Okay. Do not look at each other and worry what the other is doing. doing what has God called you to do? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, that it's a beautiful verse. And uh, I, I didn't know it existed yeah. until that, until he said that. And I know I've read it, but I just went, okay that's really helpful and it and it speaks to us in all different sorts of ways yep. yeah really good hmm. so what would you make then of if we're going to get a little radical about christians and marketing huh. if, if if the early christians weren't in politics and were separate from politics yeah you can make the exact same argument for the persuasion of yeah can i add to this mm -hmm. this is what i'm struggling with with my job yeah like being a car salesman it's like hmm. my boss said to me the other day he's like you're really good at this when it's super easy but you're awful at it when it, things get hard and you actually have to like Can't convince people yeah and i'm like yeah because i don't want to manipulate someone to yeah. buy something that would be a bad decision and i go like yeah so everything in this job is comparison yeah. between each of us working there. And then also just like the goal of manipulating the customer. Ultimately. Yeah. And I go like, it sucks. I'll, I, I don't have an, I, I won't give you an answer necessarily. I'll just give you more story. Um, so I worked at, I worked in banking industry for a little while and 
Um, I worked at the call center for CIBC in Regina. And uh, I learned really quickly that I was, um, that this was sales, that the whole thing was sales. And I didn't realize that getting into it. I thought, I actually remember in my interview because I'd done sales for a while at the sporting goods store. And I remember in the interview just saying like, I don't actually, I'm really excited to just to be a part of uh, an industry where I could actually help people consistently. And I was talking about the help of it and it not being sales-based. I kept saying that. Um, and finally it was my third interview and the manager of the whole call center was, was with me. And he just leaned back in his chair and he said, just so you know, this is all about sales. And I went, I don't know how to do that. And he went, I think you'll be all right. And they hired me. I ended up being quite good at it in the sense that I, I got put onto these like um, special teams and stuff that you had like higher numbers to hit and whatever, but they hated me. And, and actually like they would, I was constantly called to a manager's office and just going, okay, I just listened to another call. You didn't even offer a single thing to them. And I said, cause I went through their entire financial history that I could see and I didn't know what I, what would help them. And they said, well, that's not the point. And I said, <laughs> you are going to have to let me go. Yeah, that's it. So I think that it's your principles can, can live in that world. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The reality is your principles can live in that world. And same with marketing, your principles can live in the world. You just can't let the world decide what your principles are. You have to go into it saying, how am I going to live as Christ would live in this area? So do people not want to though? Yes. And there was a, there was a day where I actually had to say to them, you probably don't want me on this group. And they did, they kicked me off the group and sent me to a, a, like a really low level. I had the worst hours. I worked the midnight shift. Like it was all that stuff because, because I wouldn't do what they asked me to do. And I was honestly saying to them, I don't want to be disrespectful. Like you can let me go. But their problem was, was I was good at it. So I had learned to get through all of the financial history I could see really fast. So they'd come sit me with me and go, wow, you got through that quick. So in 30 seconds, I knew a snapshot of their entire financial history. If I couldn't see where to help them, I wouldn't try. And, and then they helped me and they said, but what if they have a whole bunch of stuff somewhere else and you could have helped them if you just asked one question. And I went, Oh, I'd not considered that. So I started asking that one question. <laughs> they were hoping that would lead into a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. But I, I actually said, I want to be in this area because I've watched and, and I did every time after time, after time, after time, people would call in and I would look at their life and go, you are crippled financially and you did it to yourself, let me help you get out of it. Like that was my goal. But there was a day when I had to make the call and just go, I can't, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do anymore anymore because you won't let me just help people. And, and I knew I had to get out. Um, in, in all aspects, there are in, in almost every job, not every job, obviously, but in almost every job, there are going to be really ungodly priorities put on it in the world every one of them so you can um sorry i'm just trying to make sure i'm careful 
you could, you could have any sort of business and make it all about being the best, about making money and about whatever else that makes you feel better about yourself. Or you could have a business because you love the Lord. He's called you to it and you want to help people. But you can have the exact same business and do either of those things. It's not the business that causes that. It's the principles inside. And so I, I would honestly just say, if you feel like that's impossible, you probably shouldn't have that job. Is it? Yeah, it's like it's been a super interesting journey going. I mean, when I first got there, it was just, I was just struggling with the like atmosphere working there. And going, right. like, I mean, some of the things that our manager said to us was right. just absurd. Yeah. But then it's been cool and seeing there's been areas of the culture at work that I've actually seen change. Like I feel like the Lord's actually working there yeah. and certain coworkers want to come to church and yeah. just like cool things like that. Mm -hmm. But then in kind of going further and seeing those changes, it sort of stripped down the job for me going like, okay, now I'm sort of just focusing on the job itself. Yeah. And there's still this like constant, yeah. it's like, I'm good at it to a certain point, but yeah. we'll never be as good as our other salesmen. And it's like, right. because I'm just not willing to go to a place of, yeah. I mean, our manager always like, we'll just go up there and you just got to make sure like you're, you're asking them, asking them what it would take to like make a deal right now. And just yeah. like, and just push them, but not too hard. And I'm like, no, for me, if I'm trying to sell someone a car, that's $40,000 and they're like, they want to take, 10 days or two months or a half a year to think about it. I want to give them that time because yeah. it's probably a stupid decision if they like, right. they did that right now. And I go like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So, so uh, when I was managing a sporting store, there was two, the tale of two Sean's is how I tell the story. Cause they were both <laughs> named Sean and they were the two best salesmen on our team. And <laughs> one of, one of them was like master manipulator, like masterful. Yeah. And it was so depressing to watch. Yeah. I once watched him. He was, he was a, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I just assumed he seemed like a good looking guy. And so he used it to his advantage. Every girl that walked in, if they were under a certain age, he was on them immediately, manipulating them like crazy. Didn't matter how much we talked to him. In the end, he got fired and he needed to. But, he, but I, I remember this moment. And it was, it was the moment where I went, oh, I actually can't let him keep doing this. Like, this is wrong. This is, this would be wrong for me to allow this on my team where this girl was trying glasses and he was flirting with her and, and she was back and whatever. And they were talking and she's like, what do you think of these ones? And she's like, I think, and he's like, oh, I love those ones. And she's like, I don't know. I think they're ugly. And he went, yeah, that's what I thought when you put them on. What an ugly. Mm. And I was like, what just happened? He walked to the back laughing. He's like, I know what's about to happen. I didn't know this until after I was in the middle of helping someone else and had to deal with the other customers. Mm -hmm. That girl was so broken in that moment. She followed him and he sold her like $600 worth of stuff. Master manipulator. He was a terrible, terrible, terrible person. But man, did he know how to sell. So that's all that mattered to him. Sean, the other Sean was the best salesman we had and he did it through hard work and help and that's how what he said i know everything about the product so when someone comes in i love getting them exactly what they need 
And so he would take them to the best product, but it was because he was like, this is the best product. You want that? This will give you all that and this other stuff. And he was just so excited to get them to buy this $300 jacket because it was the best jacket for what they needed it for. And if it was the 300 instead of the 500, but they didn't need the 500, he'd sell them the 300 because it wasn't about the sale as much as it was about the person. And they was, it was watching them was night and day difference. They were completely different people and neither of them were Christians, but this guy just went, I, I'm going to, I'm going to help 15 people at once. And I want all of them to leave. And I want two years from that, from now for them to be happy. That was his goal. So they worked in the exact same industry. They were very much the same as far as sales goes. And Sean, the not terrible one, <laughs> um, was probably more likely to try and sell the best quality stuff we had, but it was because he loved the stuff and he wanted to help the people. And so I, I don't know. I just think that, that what's happening in the heart is part of it, but there's also a certain level to which you have to go, ah, what can I do here? Like uh, it, for me, rubber hit the road one day when I helped someone out of like massive credit card debt. And I, I can only say so much, but I helped them out of this like massive credit card debt. And we did a whole bunch of stuff. It worked out so well. And then at the end I said, now you need to go cut all your credit cards. Well, I got disciplined like crazy for that because I was going, I'm trying to help you. And I know what you're going to do because now all of those are at a zero balance, but you still have them cancel them. So we canceled every CIBC one. And I was like, call this put bank call. And I just went through it with them. And I was like, you don't want to get in this position again. And they were ecstatic and they had great things to say about me. And my managers were like, you are terrible at this. Like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I can't, I won't. So I don't know. I just think people need cars. And so there's a way in which you can go about it, but I would never tell you one way or the other, it's right or wrong. Only that. Um, listen to the Lord, he'll lead you and he'll show you how to, or he'll show you that you can. There's now, a, yeah, go ahead. There's a handy phrase that's often uh, used in areas of sanctification and it probably applies to what you're talking about here. Others may, I cannot. Right. So if it was, uh, you know, dress standards, uh, or, uh, or, or something in, in the church, whatever others may, I cannot, because I'm representing Christ. Mm -hmm. Ultimately you're a salesman for the gospel. You're, you know, you have those skills, uh, to bring, bring the sale, uh, you know, to the conclusion, to the right conclusion. So you might just think about just, just that little simple phrase of others may, I cannot. If your bosses can't handle that, mm -hmm. so I, I do want to. You're, you're trusting God. I mean, this is not like this is not like a some kind of a you know. Uh, I'm just setting it out there, and I guess if they don't take this, then I guess I'll trust you. You know, you actually want to have it here. You want you know, be part. Of it. I, I do I want to put it out there that you are, you might, you might get fired in your jobs for having the right principles. You might get some form of persecution or terrible treatment or whatever else or for doing things right. 
it's not it, what doing things right is not always going to lead to oh and everything worked out for me i wish that was the case but it's not and so there's you know those uh, those sorts of um decisions are big decisions the tension you feel is actually not bad that you feel tension but you do have to ask that question can i do it is this what god has for me and and maybe maybe not but he'll find a way he'll find a way to teach you through that okay bless you guys bless you brother thank you thank you, thank you. It's dark. yeah welcome to the rest of our year yeah i guess thought you, you thought you gained an hour and look what happened <laughs> Like, we just got back from yeah, Packers when they stole from us this spring. Yesterday, the sun set at like 6 30. I was like, why are you sitting at 5 30 today? Yeah. I just wish you could stop it. Yeah. Just accept how it is. It's just how it is. Live it. I grew up in Saskatchewan. Not you. No, I'm talking about like Albert. Yeah. I grew up in Saskatchewan. I think there's a whole new Like,